You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Woman on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past and present, as well as the owners of the land you are hearing us from. Welcome to Woman on the Line, a national women's current affairs program produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Ayan Shirwa. Today's episode explores aspects of the criminal justice system that might be distressing to some listeners. If discussions about violence and trauma are a trigger for you, please come back another week. For support, call Lifeline on 131114 or visit Lifeline on lifeline.org.au. In any given year, hundreds of kids languish behind bars. In Australia, the minimum age of criminal responsibility is 10. In other words, a fourth grader can be arrested and brought before court. Canberra is the only jurisdiction that has taken steps to raise the age. This week on Woman on the Line, Raise the Age campaigner and solicitor, Sophie Trevor explains why locking up kids is not only traumatic for the child, but exposes them to further harm. And in the second half of the show, Dwin Times' Marissa Spasaro chats to Bronwyn Carlson, a professor of Indigenous Studies at Macquarie University. We want to thank Marissa for giving us permission to play her special International Women's Day coverage. But first up, let's look at the campaign to raise the age. Welcome to Woman on the Line, Sophie. Thank you very much. Before we look at Raise the Age campaign, um, I thought it'd be important to discuss some of the issues that kind of uh, span the campaign. So let's start from the top. What factors lead to youth offending? I mean, your listeners are probably aware, but in Australia, children as young as 10 years old can be arrested by police and and put into prison. So we're talking about extremely young children when we talk about this idea of offending. So offending could be anything from, you know, maybe an out-of-home care who um, throws some dinner across the room because they get frustrated, right through to the things that we might more typically think about, um, like shoplifting or... um, some sort of property graffiti, something like that. So there's a whole um, spectrum of how young people might get caught up in the criminal justice system. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids are far more likely to be picked up by police, arrested, put in prison cells than non-Indigenous kids. And the reason for this is a combination of both over-policing, so these kids just being more visible to police and police targeting these, these children more often, and policies which make life harder for these kids. Right. So higher level of poverty um, and more insecure and, and unaffordable housing, things like that. Got you. And so what happens when children do come into contact with the criminal justice system? Uh, how does their life generally pan out? So again, it really depends on, on who the child is. Um, so as I said, kids as young as 10 um, can come into contact with the criminal justice system. So that means they might be arrested by police, taken to a police lockup cell overnight where they might be held. They'll be brought before a court and it will be decided what happens to that child. Um, kids that I worked with in the Northern Territory, um, you know, often were then sent to, sent to juvenile justice detention centres, so effectively youth prisons, um, you know, where they can be held for, for any length of time. Mm. 
And I, the alternative, of course, is, is kids, particularly kids who aren't Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids, um, who come from more privileged backgrounds, mm. um, they might get um, diverted by police, they might be given a warning, they might be taken home to their parents. So a, a lot hangs on how the police interact with these children. Right. I guess the reason I asked that question was to sort of look at what happens Um, Like, how does prison exacerbate the issue? So these kids are going in for minor problems, but what does the criminal justice system do to them? Yeah, so almost nothing good comes out of the criminal justice system. All the medical evidence tells us that um, the younger a child comes into contact with the criminal justice system, the more likely it is that they will stay engaged. Mm. So that means, you know, if if a kid is 11 years old when they first have contact with police, they are much more likely to later in life, including when they're adult, continue to have that that contact with the criminal justice system. And there are lots of reasons for this, but they're, they're all pretty simple. When you, when you take a kid, a child, away from their family, away from schooling, away from all those social structures and supports, it's extremely traumatic for the child. Uh, a young person's brain is developing up until the age of about 25, but particularly when they're very young. So it disrupts the way the brain can can form and mature and cope. But even basic things, like if you're taken out of the formal education system for six months, it's very hard for you to re-engage with that when you get back. It's very hard for you to re-engage with your friends and your family. And so these kids often have a lot of difficulty assuming their normal lives in the community after it's been disrupted and, and often in a very traumatic way by putting these children in these detention centres. Absolutely. And when kids do come before the courts, the judge has the, I guess, the discretion to either send them to youth prison or there are other measures that they can deploy. What are other options that the judges can give and why don't they give that? Yeah, so there are, I mean, even before judges, um, police can issue warnings. Police can often use what's called diversion, which is um, basically electing not to take the child to court, but to say you need to participate in, in this program, um, which might be you know a program out on country, if it's Aboriginal kids we're talking about, or, or it might be some sort of community service program or some sort of therapeutic program. Um, the same options exist for judges in many cases. So they might say, you know, we don't think that you should go um, to prison. Um, what we think, though, is that you need some additional support um, with your sort of social and emotional well-being, so we're going to refer you to a program that we think might help. Um, unfortunately, again, we see this this discrimination when it comes to the way in which Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids and non-Indigenous kids are treated, and it is far more likely for an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kid to receive a custodial sentence, so to be sent to prison, um, whereas it's more likely for a non-Indigenous kid to be given... Um, the option of, of these other alternative programs, which are far less harmful. And so where does Raise the Age campaign come into this? So what the medical evidence tells us is that any contact at all with the criminal justice system is harmful for a child. So that means any interactions with police, being taken to the police station, engagement with the court, everything up to and including the, the youth detention centre itself. So what Raise the Age says is to, to try and minimise this sometimes lifelong damage and trauma that can be caused by the criminal justice system, let's all acknowledge and agree that a child under 14 years old should not be ever exposed to that kind of harm. So by raising the age to 14, it means that if a child under that age does something that otherwise would be, would be an offence, 
Instead, they are referred to therapeutic programs. Maybe um, the school will get involved to try to support that child. You might have some sort of interventions involving the family and how to help the family and, and, and the child to deal with those, those difficult behaviours. Um, but you're doing everything you can to make sure that those kids are not being driven into the criminal justice system. Right. So this campaign and I guess the whole raising the age from 10 to 14 sounds like common sense. So why, why are politicians or um, those in power so reluctant to raise the age? Like what's behind that, do you think? So I think, I mean, it's politics. At the end of the day, we've seen election after election on both sides of, of the political spectrum use um, this rhetoric of tough on crime and law and order um, to, to try to win votes. Um, we saw it recently in Melbourne um, with um, this fear-mongering around African youth gangs. We've just seen it extremely recently in the last few weeks in Queensland, um, you know, with the Minister for Police and, and others referring to these hardcore recidivist young people off the back of um, a couple of really tragic, awful um, car accidents that, that cost community members their lives. So I don't think anyone is, is pretending that there aren't sometimes devastating, awful consequences mm. of young people doing the wrong thing. But what we need to look at as a society is what's going to be the best outcome, both for that young person but for the community as a whole. And what we know about sending people, particularly young people, to prison is that it means that they're more likely to engage with the criminal justice system in the first place and the community is less likely to be safe. So it just doesn't work. At the top of the show, you mentioned things like the diversion program, but are there like programs within the community that are receiving a lot of success? Yeah, so there are some really amazing community-driven programs and particularly um, some really amazing Aboriginal-led programs um, that are designed you know, to help young people and their families deal with all, all the types of you know, difficult things that, that might come up for kids that, that might get them in trouble. So this could be things ranging from mental health and drug and alcohol support um, right through to, to programs to help kids at school who are at risk of disengaging or, or leaving the school system because they're having trouble learning or, or they're having trouble for some reason. So these programs exist um, and we know that for First Nations kids in particular, it's so important for these programs to be grounded in, in the strength of culture and community. But what we've seen from government at a state and territory as well as at a Commonwealth level is very little um, funding and support and often very short-term funding. So you give some money to a program, it just starts to show success and then the funding cycle runs out and they have to go right back to the beginning. So there's been massive success in Burke, for example, with some of their justice reinvestment programs. There are some deadly programs running in Sydney. There's some great community-run programs in WA and all around the country. But what we really need is for the Commonwealth and state and territory governments to commit to this being a priority and stop putting money into the criminal justice system and start putting it into these programs. Mm. And how can we, and I'm including myself, support the campaign? So anyone can, can sign up to be part of the Raise the Age campaign and we're regularly calling on um, our supporters and, and people that are part of the campaign to contact their MP um, or to take action to try to try to bolster public support and, and build this pressure on, on governments to, to raise the age and to change the laws. So you can do that just by going to raisetheage.org.au and you can sign up there. And I want to say that we've already had success. 
So, you know, we've been running this campaign now for, for almost a year, um, and the ACT has come out as the first jurisdiction to commit to raising the age from 10 to at least 14 years old. So that's really positive, and we're hoping in the coming months we can convince other state and territory governments to get over the line, to do the right thing by these kids and by the community, um, and, and to change the laws. We'd like to thank Raise the Age campaigner and solicitor Sophie Trevett. Visit raisetheage.org.au to find out how you can keep kids in community and out of prisons. On community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. Every year on International Women's Day, 3CR dedicates its airwaves to stories by and about women and gender diverse communities. One of the shows that participated in this year's International Women's Day programming was Doing Time, hosted by Marissa Spasaro and Pete Essen. Marissa spoke to Aboriginal women in leadership and those who've been affected by the criminal justice system. We'll let Marissa tell you more about the episode now. It's the 8th of March 2021. It's approximately 4.01 and we'll be taking you through to quite a few very, very special interviews today. And basically the theme for International Women's Day is leadership. And first up on the show, we're going to be interviewing Professor Bronwyn Carlson, who is the head of the Department of Indigenous Studies at Macquarie University. Bronwyn is an Aboriginal scholar who was born and lives on Dararul country and in Wollongong. She has worked in both the Aboriginal community controlled health sector and higher education. So for many years, the Doing Time show has focused much of its media squarely on building the movement to stop Aboriginal deaths in custody. Specifically, we will be interviewing on the topic of Indigenous femicide with Bronwyn, which is a term used in the case study to underline that the incidence of Indigenous women's deaths in these disparate places is not accidental or random, but a systematic outcome of the logic of settler colonialism. Hello, Bronwyn. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I think I've set myself a mammoth task this morning, this afternoon. You definitely have. Those are some um, huge topics to discuss. Now, Bronwyn, before we start, though, would you like to just correct, if it needs correcting, the pronunciation of the land you're on? And while you're at it, just give a little bit of introduction um, of of where you're from. Yeah, so I'm actually um, speaking to you today from Darawal country, which is, and specifically I'm in Wollongong um, in New South Wales. And... um, so I work on Darug country at Macquarie University, and for the last few years I've been, um, you know, involved in various projects that look at Indigenous peoples' engagements on social media. And one of the interesting things about that is, in social media provides a place where Indigenous people can actually challenge the silence around um, the deaths of Indigenous people, Indigenous women specifically. So it's a place where communities can come and. Um, let each other know what's happening because mainstream media largely ignores um, the deaths of Indigenous people more broadly. And so social media has been this um, a place where we're afforded the opportunity to share that knowledge with each other and also to mourn and to um, rage about it and to discuss it and to try in some ways to support each other as best we can in those forums. Absolutely. And how do you see International Women's Day? Do you think that Aboriginal women are included on the day? Well, like, this is really interesting. So, you know, raging across social media in the last um, 24 hours have been discussions around um, Q&A, the ABC's program, 
Q&A um, who had a panel titled All About Women and there were no Indigenous women on that panel. And Thank so when you. we're talking about the issues that are really important to Indigenous people, and one of those is definitely femicide and the deaths of our um, women, young people, men in, in, um, in and out of custody across Australia, that is largely excluded from, you know, public vigils, outrage, um, media attention. So to have a panel titled All About Women but excluding Indigenous women is actually outrageous. It is outrageous. And in fact, didn't one of the Liberal MPs say that we have a fabulous criminal justice system in Australia? Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. I'm always horrified by the criminal justice system and I really appreciate the work that Hannah McGlade and others do in that space to raise these um, issues to our attention. But I remember um, a few years ago watching that film by John Pilcher, is it? Um, yes. Utopia? Yep. And in there they were talking about, of course, the brutal and untimely death of Mr Ward in the back of a corrective service van. And they interviewed the then Minister for Corrective Services and she spoke about the way in which they rack and stack Indigenous people into uh, being incarcerated and how they were building prisons, particularly in Western Australia, um, to be able to do that, to rack and stack Indigenous bodies into these places. And the lack of care or concern about that in this woman's interview just was astounding, and it's always kind of stuck with me. And when she was questioned about um, the brutal death of Mr. Wood and, and her responsibility as the minister, um, she went on to say that she made her staff endure social, um, cultural awareness training as a response to the death of a human under, her, under her watch. And that and was that's it. all, right? That was it, yeah. So nothing about mourning, nothing about protocols or looking at systemic racism, nothing like that. And, and some empathy for that family and community. And so it always, it, the most shocking thing about all this and the silence that we get in the media around deaths of Indigenous people, and I know you're talking to Ms Day's family, um, and the lack of care and empathy across the nation for the deaths of Indigenous people, and particularly women, given this is International Women's Day, is... It's outstanding to me that there is not empathy for Indigenous people. And, of course, this has a big history. It, it goes back to colonisation. These things, are, it, there's a linkage here that you can see, and it's quite visible, that there is no outrage when the bodies of Indigenous people are found in the streets or in our prisons um, and die in horrific ways. There's no outrage. And, and that's astounding. Absolutely. And I, I found actually Q&A um, very, very difficult to swallow, if you want the truth, because it just yeah. made me think. And, I, and actually, I was, I, I'm glad you mentioned Q&A today, because it, it just got me to thinking about the, the dishonourable manner in which our criminal justice system or injustice system and the government views women that have died, in particular Aboriginal women, as invisible. Yeah, absolutely. Look, this government is just shameful, and we've seen that in recent days with the um, historical rape case, sexual um, violence allegations levelled against ministers, and the way in which our government has rallied around to support the perpetrators as opposed to the actual victims. And the actual death of a woman in this case, um, in, in that case um, that has just come out recently, who actually suicided because of that, 
was treated so poorly. So that tells us how women are treated in general. Indigenous women, there's this whole other level where that silence is so dramatic that, you know, I even talk to people in the everyday who have no clue about some of the ways in which Indigenous people and women have died in prison for, you know, unpaid fines or, um, you know, having one too many on your way home. Um, these are the kinds of things that have led to death sentences for women. And our, you know, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner, June Oscar, a couple of years ago, described the imprisonment rates for Indigenous women as a national disgrace. She's come out and said, like, come on, Indigenous people make up such a small percentage, but make up such a huge amount of the population in prison. And those numbers continue to grow. Indeed, they do. And one of the things Bronwyn is looking at, perhaps um, not so much making a distinction, but but talking about the spaces in which women pass away. So you've got, you know, Arnie Tanya Day, who died in police custody, for example. You've got Miss Dew, who died in custody in Western Australia, Auntie Tanya in Victoria. Then you've got, um, and we, you and I talked about this, the case study that's on the Deathscapes website. Um, last last year I believe um, where we we did a roll call didn't we Bronwyn during our interview yep. about all the women that had been either murdered or had died on in the street in the river at home so it isn't just prison where where women die and and it's everywhere it's in many of our institutions but most certainly in the streets and in homes and the lack of care for indigenous women who try to seek help is it's heartbreaking. You know, we saw um, cases where women would call um, police or call other um, forms of support and, you know, either face rejection or face actually violence from those that they seek help from. Um, you know, so what is it that Indigenous women do when they're in, a, um, in need in, um, to seek help? You know, the, the, it's limited um, what people can do and people are fearful of calling authorities because of what could happen. Absolutely. And and so this is interesting that we're, we're building on looking at all institutions and all spaces, and that's why I've chosen three of you today to be to be interviewed about, about that. What about your passion in terms of um, your own projects? What, what do you think would be one of the... The, the best things that you've, or straight, one of your strengths that you've contributed? I'm sure there are many. Uh, well, you know, we, it's ongoing work. Like these things are not um, something that you can feel like you've right. had, had some input into and that there is some great resolution. And so I was really proud to be part of the Deskapes project. Um, I was invited in by uh, Joseph Puglazi and Sue Vredrini Ferrara to um, be part of the Deskapes, particularly the femicide project where I spoke about, um, you know, that historical link in the way in which Indigenous women have been treated. And, you know, we showed there was just like untold evidence in the archive that speaks to the way in which people revere the crimes against Indigenous women. You know, they, they talk quite freely about raping Indigenous women, um, the murder of Indigenous women, and, pe- and Indigenous men and, um, you know, um, non-binary um, people as well, but given we're just talking about women today, um, I also want to note that the high levels of violence against trans women, 
is outrageous. Indigenous trans women um, face some of the most horrific crimes against them as well. So this, this has a massive link to um, colonialism, which can't be just dismissed because that link is there. It's this logic that's in place that sees the, the systemic and systematic violence perpetrated against Indigenous women as being something that is almost normalised. And that's why you see a lack of rage from the community. Because if you see one non-Indigenous woman who is brutally killed, and this happens regularly, like I turn on the news some days and I think I am literally just watching story after story about violence against women. We have a major problem. So let alone Indigenous women, there's this other layer because there's this lack of giving a care about Indigenous women. So we don't see that on the news so much. You don't see the deaths and the horrific nature of the way in which some women die. Exactly. Um, you know, yeah, and so I do some of the work that I do. I, I get to look at Indigenous people worldwide and our engagements with social media. And so, you know, I, um, you know, I've published with people who've spoken about missing and murdered women across the globe and using um, various hashtags. And I guess that's often just pointed to Canada and the yeah. way in which those horrific numbers of Indigenous women who are murdered and missing and girls, young girls. It Absolutely. happens here too. It's crazy, Bronwyn. It's it's yeah. a horrible thing, and um, sorry, I, I I use that word crazy. I've got a bit of a, a bit of a black, dark sense of humour, um, but it's. I think what we need to do now, Bronwyn, is is try to get that work happening. Um, having Belinda Stevens up next, or Belinda Day, I should say. Yeah. But in the meantime, are you able to just give us the details of the Deathscapes website, and I'll have you back on soon. To talk yeah, about so in absolutely. Detail. People need to go on to deathscapes.org um, and then with, on the homepage you will see a link to look at the femicide um, case studies. But I urge you to look at the entire project. So it's looking at, it's an international focus as well, um, including obviously Australia, but it's looking at the, the sort of unlawful deaths, the, the killings of Indigenous um, people in general, and then moving into um, the site there that's looking at um, femicide and Indigenous people. And I should say that this project was inspired by the really tireless work of Indigenous people in the community, and yes. really including the late Uncle Ray Jackson, who said in regard to Indigenous death and custody particularly, that um, he prefers to call them murder by neglect, because that's exactly what it is. And then if we think about the ways in which Indigenous people are dying in custody. And so I think in recent times, just in the recent couple of decades, there's been over 400 deaths of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in police custody. That's outrageous numbers. And it is outrageous. Absolutely. And for yeah. Indigenous women, they are less likely to receive any appropriate medical care um, prior to their deaths compared with other prisoners in there. And authorities are less likely to follow up on their own procedures in cases where an Indigenous woman has died in custody. Absolutely. So there's no chair. There's and no that, care. That was Bronwyn Carlson speaking to Marissa Spasaro from Doing Time. You can listen to the rest of Doing Time's International Women's Day special by going to www.3cr.org.au slash doingtime. If the content in this segment you just listened to has raised questions or caused distress to you, please call Lifeline on 131114 or visit lifeline.org.au. Woman on the Line is a national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women and gender non-conforming broadcasters 
from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Woman on the Line is produced by Ripley Kavara. I'm Ian Shirwa and we hope to see you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.